Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 30th of July with me, Ian Welsh. Recently I caught up with Jason Glazer, epidemiologist and CEO of La Isla Network. We talked about the potential impact of climate change on the health of agricultural workers in tropical and more temperate regions. It's already an identified problem in the sugarcane sector and a significant potential risk for any business with agricultural commodity supply chains. That's coming up a little later, as it's another chance to hear a lively debate between Innovation Forum's Toby Webb and palm oil and forest expert Dr Simon Lord about the unintended consequences of planting trees. That's all to come. No news this week. That'll return next time. The Innovation Forum team is working on our Autumn Conference programme. From the 27th to 29th of September is the Future of Climate Action US event, focusing on how to tackle greenhouse gases in supply chains. Already signed up as speakers and panellists are senior representatives from Kellogg, Alaska Airlines, AB Bev, PepsiCo, Oxfam America and many more. And if you register now, you can save $300 in passes. This offer ends on 6th of August. This year's Future of Plastics event will be held from the 11th to 13th of October. We'll have three days of frank and open debate with leading brands about how to reach stretching targets. Panellists from Unilever, Iceland, Coca-Cola European Partners, The Body Shop and Ecover are among the experts already confirmed. If you'd like to attend, you can save £225 on passes if you book now. This offer has been extended to close on the 30th of July. And save the date for Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which will be held this year from the 30th of November to 2nd December. Full details are being released over the coming weeks, but we are looking forward to once again bringing together all the relevant people to ensure that we have three days of robust debate and discussion. And you can save £225 on passes if you reserve your place by the 30th of August. A few days ago, I spoke with Jason Glazer epidemiologist and CEO of La Isa Network, who has been advising the World Health Organization on Occupational Health and the office of Camilla Harris, Vice President of the United States. Let's talk a bit about your work then. I mean, I know you've been investigating the impacts of heat for agricultural workers in the tropics. How does increasing temperatures impact agricultural workers? It's that intersection of high environmental temperatures and workload. If the temperatures are increasing even more, it's even more difficult for people to dissipate the heat they're building up as they work hard in those temperatures. So as the climate warms, both in the tropics and abroad, it's going to be even more difficult for people to protect themselves without really intensive mitigations to basically bring down that core temperature, make sure they're hydrated, and basically make sure they're cool in really tough environments. What the outcomes can be are both short-term and more long-term. So some of the short-term outcomes that should be of interest to everybody listening are outright death and illness from heat stroke and other heat-related illnesses. There's also the issue of reduced productivity. It's just much harder to work efficiently when you're that hot and continually hot. And the other one is most injuries are going to go up when you're that hot consecutively, especially day after day. I mean, just think of yourself working in your garden or after a long run in high heat, you're not really working with your full faculties. So you're more likely if in a working situation to maybe cut yourself, to take a tumble. If you're on a construction site, to take a fall. There's the immediate impact of outright death, cardiac arrest, organ failure due to heat stroke, and then other injuries. And then the longer term impacts can be organ damage, which seems to have a focus or locus on the kidney and the kidney can fail over time. So it's really important to just invest in the prevention on the front end because all of those outcomes are just unnecessarily dangerous, life-threatening, and frankly, very expensive for companies, for individuals, for the communities, and for health systems. It makes more sense to invest in protecting workers from this now. 
From your research then, what do you think will be the likely impacts of climate change in this regard? We're already seeing what we've been seeing in the tropics for decades now come up to northern and more southern latitudes. So places that we've thought of as temperate, like the Pacific Northwest, will have these heat bubbles and they will not be that short. They'll persist for long times. And we've already seen quite a high rate of mortality due to that. And we're also going to be seeing issues in Europe. We already have in Spain and Italy and Greece with agricultural workers and other workers at risk. What was kind of something that people maybe wanted to put out of sight, out of mind on commodities in the tropics are now affecting us right at home. Today, it's really hot in the UK. I would wonder if people in the UK could imagine swinging machete, cutting seven tons of sugarcane today, you know, in that heat without a break, without adequate water. Absolutely not. Thanks very much. So yes, but it certainly <laughs> does give us an idea of how these impacts are shifting. And what was once confined to tropical regions is now something that we're going to see likely across for outdoor workers, across more temperate zones. What will be the impact for companies with tropical and other commodities in their supply chains? This one's tough. The easy answer is this. The easy answer is the impact is they're going to get in there. They're going to really evaluate their supply chains. They're really going to work with partners on the ground and in the development sector to address these shortfalls in labor protections. And they're going to make sure that not one single worker dies in a multi-billion dollar company through their supply chain. That's the easy answer. That's the doable and the achievable answer. I have to say, though, I mean, and you've watched this over 10 years, we have struggled to convince en masse brands and producers to come together with us as researchers to really make this thing an issue of the past. It should be an issue of the past. It's the 21st century, and we're still talking about and still pushing for evaluated programs to keep core temperature down and keep workers safe from that one major occupational health risk of heat stress. You know, what that could be is also a gateway to address the other issues of occupational health and employment, but it's such an addressable one. I don't want to say it's easy, but it's achievable. So the tougher answer is companies have to start coming together with other actors and really trying to leverage the change that they promise their consumers, that they promise their shareholders, and that they promise folks at conferences. We frankly have not seen that in mass yet, but the door is wide open. And I think, I hope what we're seeing with this kind of coverage about the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and this kind of reckoning that seems to be going on, that this is here, it's going other places, this heat is real, it's mortal. I hope it activates that change we've been advocating for. Yes, there does seem to be an enormous risk on the horizon. And in fact, here right now for companies regarding the occupational health of workers in their supply chains. You know, it's the next reputational risk bomb, I'd imagine, it's just going to come. So I mean, are companies taking this seriously, Jason? Not enough. I mean, for the earlier comments, I want to be able to say, yes, it's awesome. Everybody's giving us a call and asking how they can protect their workforce. I mean, we've seen a few things. We've seen either denial from producers historically, though I would say that is changing in the Mesoamerican context. There's a lot of excitement and willingness to change. So that gets to the second bit. Having a program is insufficient. You have to have a program that has been adequately designed and also adequately implemented. And that takes time. I mean, change takes time. It needs to be adequately evaluated because we need to talk about impact. We need to know what were the outcomes before or have at least an estimate and then show that by proper implementation and execution, we're actually bringing those incidents of death and injury down. That's what we need to see. It's such a small investment and it's something that can actually be solved. You know, if, if it's not going to be one of these forever battles to solve. It's so doable, but we don't solve it 
by not coming together and not working together. We have to start that conversation now. We have to put in the investments as companies, as development institutions, as governments, the requisite resources and finances to get it done. I have not seen that yet, but I do think it's on the horizon and, and, and the door is wide open and we are ready to go. Let's talk a little bit about what companies can do about it. Firstly, let's just unpack a little bit of your research. There are some very simple, straightforward things that can be done in the field to mitigate the effects of heat stress, aren't there? I mean, why don't you run us through those? I think the first step you'd want to do is evaluate what's currently happening, understand the structure of the organization, how it's organized, how it's managed day to day, kind of identify what some of the weak links or the links that need strengthening to understand why this work is important, why prevention of heat stress is important. I would really start there. Evaluation and a good organizational management assessment. So you kind of get everybody aligned, everybody on board and everybody kind of excited about the work and not looking at it like yet another barrier or task. And we've shown that that's possible. Then it's really about introducing a system of water, rest, shade, and sanitation. But it's about having mobile tents that stay close to the cutting front or the work site for other industries. It's about having sufficient rest depending on the workload of the job you're trying to protect so that you keep that core temperature down. And it's about consistency of implementation because the scary thing about heat stroke or heat stress in general is just one bad day of implementation could be mortal for people, could lead to their death or their long-term injury. So it's really important to not just have a great design, but really have a robust implementation assessment as well. And then once you get that rolling, you evaluate year to year, both your implementation and your outcomes, you know, your health outcomes, your productivity outcomes, and the rest of it. When you have that system in place, it just becomes the norm of business, just like a company manages its logistics, just like a company manages its advertising and sales team. It's just another set of data to easily analyze and measure against. And I think that's when it becomes an issue of the past. That's when it becomes a total success, when it's just business as usual. We don't harm workers who provide basic commodities. I think that's so achievable. Listeners, I would recommend you look at the work of La Isla Network, their work in Nicaragua, where they have proven in sugarcane setting the effectiveness of the shade, the water, and the rest and sanitation interventions that, uh, that Jason just mentioned. Let's think this a bit more broadly. How is policy changing around agricultural worker health? And what are the best practice specifics that companies should be aware of? Yeah, this is getting interesting. So I think one of the problems in the tropics is that the guidelines that everybody points to are these OSHA guidelines that frankly, nobody's really sure where they emerge from, and they might be overly conservative. So there's an effort right now in research to figure out what is required for proper breaks and hydration to protect health that could be achievable in high temperatures. Because right now, if you follow those OSHA guidelines in Nicaragua, or frankly, in Oregon right now, nobody would be working at all because it's too hot many days to work past maybe 9am, 10am. But if that's the way it is, then that's another conversation if that's actually impacting health. But the suspicion is you can moderate that a bit. Now, on the other side, you have another problem where some of these new regulations or emergency responses like an organ are coming in. And from what I understood, they're insufficient, they're woefully insufficient. Like if it's 30 degrees or above, there's supposed to be something like 10 minutes of rest every two hours. Well, that's not going to do the job. That's not going to bring your core temperature down. That's not going to protect you either. So the regulatory framework right now, I think is in process. Like that's not where it needs to be. So I think what companies need to do is they need to kind of lead the way. And that's about on-site evaluation of core jobs 
that are in your supply chains, and then understanding through the process that we've developed with the Atalante Initiative, what's required to maintain a healthy core temperature or an adequately cool core temperature so you don't have some of these risks evolve. It's not an easy answer. The issue in short is current regulation may be too conservative. We're trying to figure that out. Some of the emergency response is insufficient. And actually, none of it's really regulation. It's recommendation from OSHA. So there's a long way to go. Now, the good news in the States is there's a big push in the Senate and Congress to address this. But it's really going to be beholden to the research community and employers to do what's best with the best available data. And I think that's achievable and doable. You mentioned some guidelines just now, the OSHA guidelines. So how do you spell OSHA? Occupational Safety Health Administration, and that's O-S-H-A. And those are a good place to start. But again, they're they're a bit conservative. So I think what needs to be done is that evaluation program assessment of new practices, and then seeing if those are effective. Who can companies go to help sort this out? I mean, are there sources of finance available to help to really engage in these serious issues? Yeah, research wise, I mean, La Isla Network can certainly put teams together for you. I mean, the whole idea of the network is it's not really about one group of researchers. There's a lot of researchers now, physiologists, epidemiologists, hygienists that can get out there and function as practitioners to help you achieve these goals. So on the research side, that's available. People would be literally falling over themselves to help protect a workforce all over the world. But you know, one thing I've realized is being the tip of the spear for a company, be it a producer or a brand, sometimes puts you at a very unfair competitive advantage because you're taking resources and investing in protecting people while others are not. And unfortunately, right now, the market is not sufficiently rewarding those who take the charge, take the lead. So I think it's important that people come together. And I think when people come together, a lot of things happen in terms of like having the expertise and different perspectives to make things work long term. And it also allows potentially for the subsidization of a program until it becomes the norm. And so what I mean by that is development agencies like USAID, the equivalents in Europe, the BMZ or the GIZ in Germany. Things like the development banks, like the World Bank on a state level, the development finance institutions like the International Finance Corporation or the DEG could really step in and help supplement these changes and these shifts, especially for producers. And then brands can come in as well and help support that. And then there's also philanthropy that can come in and support this. So my view is, let's say you have a mill in the Dominican Republic and there's been resistance to change and much of it is financial. But if that mill a group of top gun researchers, a big brand comes in and a development institution comes in and they say, let's get together and do this. There will be the resources and there will be frankly excitement, especially within the development community to have such a program launch because that's what it's going to take. But that doesn't happen if we don't start talking to each other. And so I guess that's my consternation and my disappointment in 10 years. We've been trumpeting this. We've been here the whole time and it's been the minority of experience that we've got that going in Nicaragua. And now we have two mills in Mexico, I'm happy to say. And that work is supported by the US Department of Labor, World Vision ourselves, and a group of mills from Beta San Miguel. But again, the brands are absent. So how do we get everybody at the table? And how do we make this in the past? I think you got to start the conversation and figure out the roles and the resources for each party. Do you think that the brands and everyone else will come to the table at scale before there's a massive scandal? Or is it going to take a big scandal to really make this happen? That's a great question. And it's one I've wrestled with for 10 years, because frankly, you often feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you sit by and you try to glad hand and be nice to everybody, 
you often end up in what I have found to be circular conversations that don't end in anything concrete, that don't end in any real protections. And there's a lot of self-satisfaction in those conversations I've found. And people will trumpet programs that are inadequate, that are unevaluated and say, oh, we're doing something. We have a water rest shade program, but they have no idea if it's sufficient. So you could be just continuing to harm people. You likely are because this takes some specificity on the front end. And then when you've tried every single reasonable way to engage and educate and reach out to a party, be they a producer or a brand, and you finally go, you know, enough is enough. My mission at La Isla Network is to protect workers. You're in the way of that. I need to call you out. We have a mission conflict right now. Then when you call them out and you actually drive change and things begin to improve and you see like an incredible shift because there was that pressure some people go, oh, you know, you're difficult or we have allergies to you is a term they use in Latin America. So, you know, where does that leave the person or the group that's really trying to push things forward? So my thought is, how do we avoid all that nonsense, frankly? And how do we just get together, look at the facts, evaluate the resources required and fix an issue that's so eminently reasonable and eminently achievable to, to address and stop vilifying, you know, the guy or the group or the groups of people, or the people themselves that are working, when they say, hey, this isn't okay, I don't want to die of kidney disease, I don't want to drop from a heat stroke, or I don't want to watch this unnecessarily. It's a tough answer, but you've watched me work on this, I think, for the be- almost a decade. We've been working on it for 12 years. I think both you and I would be dishonest in saying it's where we thought it would be <laughs> by now. There's some really good progress. The project in Mexico is really cool. The project in Nicaragua is groundbreaking. But it's time for some real talk. It's time for let's get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves. The past is what it is. Impressions are what they may have been. But the data is there. The will is there. The ability is there. Let's save some lives. It does seem that there's a bit of an opportunity here perhaps to leverage the climate crisis into helping focus the minds of many businesses onto this potential huge human rights and occupational health issue in their supply chain. So at the moment, it seems to be sort of sleepwalking towards a, a scandal. But yes, <laughs> but let's, let's help them not. The let's, let's help them wake up and have a victory. You know, like, wouldn't it be nice not to have to pay a PR firm and legal counsel because you slept walked into a scandal? Wouldn't it be nice to just invest much less money into solving a problem that is just a clear and present danger? Let's make it happen, right? Indeed. Let's see if that can happen. But for now, Jason Glazer from Lisa Network. Thanks very much indeed. Coming up now is another chance to listen to an engaging conversation between sustainability expert Simon Lord and Innovation Forum's Toby Webb on some of the challenges around reforestation and forest restoration. Those of you who don't know Simon CB, uh, you can Google Dr. Simon Lord, but he's worked a lot in agribusiness uh, for many, many years. So we're not going to go into detailed CVs, but Simon and I wanted to have a chat about tree planting. I've been getting a lot of emails recently from companies talking about either their tree planting programs, their plans to plant trees, or a service they're offering to sell me and my customers on tree planting in this year of climate change policy. So clearly, tree planting is is taking an enormous amount of shape in terms of interest. But of course, there are different ways of doing it. And you can have bad forestry projects, and you can have good ones. Simon... Let's talk briefly, about, I suppose, about the drivers for this. One of the reasons everyone wants to plant trees at the moment is clearly because of climate change. But we've got to be quite careful, haven't we, in how we do this, because not all forests and plantations and tree planting projects are created equal, are they? 
certainly not equal. And, you know, I think just because of climate change isn't just the other driver. The other one is lots of biodiversity. And if you start looking at biodiversity, then there has to be a habitat to actually preserve those species. And so I think that the other driver is a restitution to this planet in which we restore the forests as part of the rich biodiversity in the world. And, and I think those two are the big drivers for what we've been through. Yes, certainly true. It's definitely a year of nature and biodiversity. Well, that and rewilding, isn't it, Toby? I mean, it, you know, certainly in the UK, people are talking about rewilding because we've gone through COVID. I know there's a great deal of chatter on social media about whether or not rewilding and the fact of loss of loved ones can be combined and so that people plant a tree for every person who has actually been lost due to COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, trees attract, you know, they're, they're an emotional subject. People feel very strongly about them. But from, from a corporate point of view, Simon, if a, a company comes to you and says, we're not sure about some offsetting projects for one reason or another, but tree planting sounds good to us. And we've got this carbon footprint and we've done our scope one, scope two, and we do need to do some offsets. So tree planting sounds pretty good. Where should we look? What do we do first? What would your advice be? Well, first of all, I would tell them you've come to the wrong company. You know, I no longer work for, for corporates anymore. I'm, I'm independent. But when I was CSO of, of Simon Darby, it's a plantation company. Plantation companies still haven't got their heads around is the fact that, in a sense, they're also land management companies and they have a huge amount of, of land available. A company that came to me offering to plant trees on our behalf, um, we would probably turn down. And the simple reason would be that we have our own tree planting programs, or we did when I was there have our own tree planting programs, because it's, we own some of the land and therefore we can actually afford to do it. A lot of these people that come and actually say, well, we can plant trees on behalf and, and that way you can offset and they've done the calculations and you know, X number of trees equals so many tons of CO2 equivalents. You know, your first questions are is, well, you know, where is it? You know, what type of trees are you planting? Is it a mixture? Are they endemic to the native species? Or is it some kind of monoculture that they're actually going to be setting up? The next thing is, is how are you going to go about it? It's not easy, actually, creating a forest. We've all done a little bit of gardening. We've all done a little bit of planting. And the tree planting is, is not quite the same. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. But if you're actually creating a forest, then that's an entirely different thing. You have to get the mixture right, you know, the composition of the forest. Nature does it brilliantly on its own. If you're going to do, actually, a human-made one, then you actually have to try and mimic that as far as possible. We've got quite a bit of experience of riparian or buffer zone expansion near rivers, uh, widening them, making them into corridors. They're the slightly different function than to actually trap carbon, although, of course, they're going to do that. This was for a wildlife movement and also, indeed, for physical protection of, of riverbanks and the land beyond it. You know, some of the lessons learned there is that, first of all, it's, it's quite easy to plant trees another matter to maintain them and so my other question to a company would be all right well what are your plans once you've built how are you actually going to maintain it you know what kind of effort what kind of budget is there put aside for basically forest management what we learned was that just taking native species 
you know, essential really, and creating these buffer zones. What we needed to do was plant, first of all, pioneer species that would provide the shade because most of the endemic species actually needed the shade cover in order for them to start flourishing. And the other problem is that because the land is often being cleared and you're clearing it and you're actually planting from scratch, is that all these invasive species, which normally would be under control in a balanced ecosystem within a forest, they actually need to be dealt with. And if you're going for a pesticide-free or herbicide-free approach, then the only way that you can do that is actually manual labour and to physically remove climbers and the weeds that compete with these young sap. But we did in, in Sabah with the Syme Derby Foundation, it's called Yayasan Syme Derby, we built 5,400 hectare forests from scratch. All palm planters know how to plant trees, and sadly, we always plant them in straight lines. And indeed, that was the approach that we did for the forest. Planting them in a random way actually is not very productive and takes about 12 times as long to do. So we had these rentices in which the trees would be planted. Now we worked out the spacing, uh, optimised in advice. It's, it's about two metre by two metre. So you're essentially planting a tree in a two metre by two metre quadrant, a little square, and you want to get a composition mix in that area. And you're looking at somewhere about 25 species. And you're wanting to get a stocking density. And it varies, but somewhere between 600 to 1,000 trees per hectare. And we've worked out the, the cost of doing that. We tried it at 2,000 trees per hectare, which was a bit dense. But it was needed because in the early stages, you know, we weren't very good at this. And so there was actually mortality. You know, that's something, the attrition rate. You learn by doing this. And then with Wetlands International and a great guy called Basil Parrish, we worked with them and they were restoring a peat zone, which is on the edge of one of the biggest forests. And it was just very small areas, but also learned a lot in how to basically recolonize these peat areas. And again, they chose rentices, these straight lines, to, to get the trees, first of all, established. Later on, nature will do its own job and infill. But again, they had huge problems, not from what you would expect, but actually from local people, and I think egged on by some local councillors, politicians, who urged the people, because there were counterclaims on this land, although it was NGO land, and they actually kept on going in and burning down the young seedlings. And, and I remember Simon Darby used to have to send its own fire brigade to help them, because it wasn't our project, we were just involved in it, uh, to keep putting out these fires before they could finally get established. There, there was complete start from beginning, plant these trees. In other areas, they were planting trees at irregular intervals to in allow natural encroachment and, and build that. In other areas, we planted 1.3 million trees now, all of which are endemic to various states in Malaysia. And these are on parcels of land, which for one reason or another, thank goodness, were never planted with oil palm. There's tremendous areas available, even in a country like Malaysia, where infilling and tree planting can occur, let alone when you start talking about the temperate areas 
and the green spaces in the UK where I live, where you can do it. So do we talk about tree planting? Because it's very, it sounds very simple, because forest restoration is so difficult. I mean, I went to a forest restoration project in Sumatra just before COVID happened. I was blown away by the complexity of it. It's um, not something I thought about much, but visiting the nursery, and I've got some video of this, listeners, which I'll post for, for you to see underneath the podcast or, or, or somewhere in the notes. You know, you look at the number of species you have available to you to try and put in, and it's literally square metre by square metre on the edge of this seriously degraded forest, which have been degraded over the last century or so. And it struck me it was an unbelievably complex and painstaking process where you've got to make some very difficult choices about which species you might favour over others. Is that why we talk about tree planting? Because forest restoration is so damn difficult. Yeah, I think it is. And, and, and also, you know, there I say it's, it's shades of green, isn't it? 50 shades of green when you start doing forest planting. People do it for lots of reasons. But like any forest or any tree planting starts with good nursery management. And the best people to select the species are local people, communities. I know that Eric Wacker in Aid Environment is working very hard in Indonesia on community forests. And I know that the work that Syme did with Nestle's on these restoration of these buffer zones, I mean, basically, Syme Darby had bought a plantation and with it the liability that the earlier owners planted right up to the edge of a river, which is a no-no under the RSPO, but also a no-no when you think about it in common sense. So it began this program of restoring along with Nestle. And there we engaged with the local communities and particularly the women's group who seemed to have better green fingers than the men. And essentially they would gather the seeds from the surrounding forests um, after the infrastructure was put in. They would manage and maintain the nursery because, I mean, rubbish in, rubbish out, not being afraid to cull at the nursery level if something doesn't look perfect pays off in the long run. I mean, it works with oil palm and it works with most tree species. You know, you plant something that's in poor health. You know, if you go to any garden centre, you know, you don't pick something that looks a little bit poorly and expect it to flourish. Um, it's not animal rescue. It's actually planting trees. So people talk about planting trees because at every step in the process for forest restoration, it is complicated. I'm not sure it's complex, Toby, but it's, it's a complicated and it's process-driven, it's rate-driven. But when you put it all together, there's a lot of moving parts that need to be made to work. Whereas tree planting is sexy. You go and you plant a tree. I mean, I've got trees all around the world with my name on them, particular inaugural programs that people have set up. And it's fairly easy to plant a tree and anybody can do it. And kids can get involved. Schools can get involved. It's a great way of rewilding. But when you start talking about a forest, the aftermath of it, it's not just planting it, it's keeping it under control. So from a corporate point of view, Obviously, if, if a big company wants to plant trees, they're not going to just plant one or two or put some around the edge of a school field. And I appreciate that can be a good thing. But surely tree planting monocultures is a bad idea. I mean, yeah. I've heard examples. The Chinese have tried to do this, haven't they, to stop the expansion of the Gobi Desert southwards. I mean, there are some serious unintended consequences to just sticking a load of, sort of monoculture species next to each other and hoping that's going to be an effective programme. It is. I mean, I, I get the point of tree plantations as a commercial crop because people still want to use wood. I totally understand that. Even, even if you're going for renewable energy sources, 
and you need wood chip. You know, I, I get that. And they should be regarded like any other crop as an agribusiness and an area of monoculture. I mean, we don't pick up a fuss over a field of cabbage. We shouldn't pick up a fuss over a field of acacia. If you're trying to then claim that you're planting a forest, you're not. You're actually planting a commercial crop. It yeah. might have a slightly longer payback, but it's still a commercial crop. Interplanting with a range of species is rewilding, and that's what you're trying to aim. It's very important then to be clear about what your intention is, because acacia or eucalyptus plantations, if that land isn't going to be used effectively in any other way, they can be a very helpful way of funding restoration elsewhere. I've seen that with April's projects in, in Sumatra. Yeah. Yeah, NGOs are sort of whatever, controversial, but actually, when I saw that land, if that land wasn't used to generate money to save the bits of natural forest that are remaining, it would go to waste and the peat would oxidise and there'd be huge problems. I can see the value for companies in having you know, plantations that, that are used and the resources are used for something else. I suppose if you're a corporate and you're thinking about offsetting, you just really want to make sure it's about forestry and rehabilitation than about funding a planting of a monoculture species which may not actually have a commercial value to it. Yeah, absolutely. It is about being pragmatic, isn't it, in terms of a monoculture forest that then pays for extra work elsewhere, which otherwise wouldn't be funded, is exactly right. In oil palm, for example, nobody plants on steep slopes, or at least they shouldn't, but they have. Those areas are now available to be regenerated. I wouldn't consider those areas purely as potential revenue source of a monoculture. Yeah, things like balsa, you know, fast-growing, highly prized, paulinia, which is a, a tree species that is, is used an awful lot in commercial, and it's fast-growing. Yes, they may well stabilise hillsides, and they may well stop it from eroding, because if it was clear... It would just erode and you'd lose the soil fertility. And we don't talk enough about that. Maybe one of our next podcasts will be on soil quality and quantity. Those areas really could be put back to what we would call climax vegetation, you know, or at least putting the, literally the seeds in for climax vegetation to be re-established. And I should, don't think they should be seen as a, a land grab. In the oil palm industry, and it's no different in other industries, Climate change is going to have an impact on the business and on the land. Some of those impacts will be that land that previously was productive is no longer productive. And I think in my industry that I've worked in, people really have to get their heads around the fact that peat is not sustainable and that really we have an exit strategy from those areas which are peat, regardless of the depth. That is land which would be considered as a stranded asset uh, and non-productive, that's an area of land that you can begin to restore. In restoring it, I don't see anything wrong. And in talking to the experts, and I'm not an expert on, on any strength, is that there can be some small commercial crops which work with the community that give them cash to keep the project running because it's got to be kept running but then there are vast areas which can be given over to climax. Steep slopes are natural stranded assets. I mean, you know, water doesn't travel uphill, at least it doesn't in my industry. And therefore, as things get drier, then it's going to affect the slopes even more. This is fairly common sense. But there are other areas where you're not going to be able to access them because they're waterlogged. 
atmosphere of you know increased precipitation and porosity, you won't be able to get into those areas, or you won't be able to get into those areas because the road network is being affected, the infrastructure. But all of these are parts of stranded assets, let alone legislation that says you know you shouldn't take these areas. And these are great opportunities, which I think people haven't really considered, really, is looking at regenerative agriculture and combining production and protection in those areas. We're still going to need food. The big challenge is to grow more food on less land. He said this. It's not me that's saying this at all. Yeah. But there's a great opportunity for that land that you're not using to actually go and rewild it. And at the same time, if you can get some kind of carbon value for what that naturally is storing, then that just provides the pump priming money for further expansion of those areas. But we haven't got it right yet, have we? So what we're saying is that the unintended consequence of just thinking about tree planting is that you can end up with monocultures, you can end up with a badly planned project. What you really should think about is not tree planting, but forest restoration, rewilding and regenerative agriculture projects. Now, they could be kind of insetting projects, I suppose, in, in, in a corporate supply chain, or they could be projects that you fund perhaps through engagement with Red Plus program or elsewhere. You mentioned earlier, Simon, the Forest Conservation Fund and their sort of price per hectare. Tell us a bit about that. Is that a potential solution to help cut through some of the confusion about tree planting and its potential unintended? Yeah, I joined the Earthworm Foundation Forest Conservation Fund in June of last year. It's a very, very simple idea. People can work with earthworm. They will actually find the pieces of land. They will actually do all the paperwork, the legalities, the stakeholder engagement so that communities are involved with it. Because, you know, there is no unencumbered land, Toby, anymore in the world, especially where these forests are. They will put in a system for every single hectare that it is protected and all that people have to do is donate and it's 20 us dollars per hectare per year now individuals can sponsor this corporates of course are involved there's a due diligence process because there has to be in order that it's not just anybody for example a company that is is trashing the forest in one part of the world can't just buy into this fund to pay for their sins. I mean, they should be doing something themselves. But it's open to all. I'm sure after this podcast, you can share some addresses for this. A wonderful group of people. Charlotte Opal is the person who actually is running this program on behalf of Forest Conservation Fund. And it's got numerous projects. There's about six major projects at the moment. Still needs some more funding. There's no shortage of finding these areas. It's finding the commitments for people to not just buy it for a year, but of course make a longer term commitment and corporates could play a fantastic potential solution then. I mean, I think what we tried to do in this initial podcast, and by the way, listeners, we didn't really plan this. Uh, Simon and I felt that we know each other well enough to just have a conversation, but we, I think we appreciate, we don't know all the answers, but what we've tried to do here is point out that it's a lot more complex than just planting trees and that there are unintended consequences to not thinking it through. And yet there are solutions like the Forest Conservation Fund, which enable you to engage, engage in the longer term and in the kind of wider aspects, which also involve 
social and community empowerment and kind of rural sustainable development, as well as just planting trees. I hope that's been helpful for some of you. I'm going to post this with some links from Simon and I. And I imagine when we put this on LinkedIn, Simon, with the right title, we're going to get a dozen forestry experts uh, chiming in with their views, which is great because then we can have that conversation on LinkedIn. But for now, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the first edition of Unintended Consequences with Simon and Toby. We'll see how the reaction is and we'll see how the podcast series develops. For now, Simon, thanks for your insight. You're welcome. I, I really welcome people to wade in where I've been in error. That's fine. At least point it out. But do so is a way forward because unless we do start restoring forests, in fact, building forests, then I actually think this planet is on a trajectory which is not going to be good for anybody. Yeah, well, let's hope these projects, carefully thought through and properly resourced, can make a, a significant contribution to reducing emissions and enhancing rural livelihoods. We've kind of got to make it work, really, haven't we? So we'll leave it there. Simon, thanks again. Thanks, Toby. That's all for this week. Don't forget to go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts and to take advantage of the discounts for the conferences coming up in the autumn. The podcast is having a couple of weeks off now and returning in mid-August. So that's all for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next month, goodbye.